This is Jeff Chrisman, and I'm here today speaking with Dave King, the CEO of Exaptive. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks. I thought what we might do is start out, if we could, and hear a little bit from you about the services that your firm provides. Yeah, absolutely. So Exaptive is a uh, company that has built a software platform for data analytics and facilitated innovation. So um, that sounds maybe... um, you know, grandiose, what we do uh, a little bit more tangibly is we try and figure out how to help the tools and techniques that emerge uh, out of one discipline, how to help those be more easily leveraged in other disciplines. So um, I can give uh, a couple examples, which is that, um, for example, with the big data revolution, many, many different areas are trying to focus on how to um, use data to make better decisions. And in order to do that, they apply a whole bunch of different methodologies. Um, maybe that's machine learning, maybe that's statistics, um, uh, maybe you know, there's other techniques. Those, tech, those methodologies tend to emerge for a particular use case in a particular area, like, um, for example, financial markets. Somebody comes up with an algorithm to try and help Uh, trading in financial markets. And they do that by looking for correlations with, let's say, housing uh, prices and oil and things like this. That technique often gets siloed in that particular discipline, when in reality, um, geneticists are also looking for correlations, and they might really benefit from being able to leverage that methodology. Hmm. So um, much like, uh, much like, when Adobe created the PDF standard, they made it easier to sort of share documents regardless of how those documents were created. Exaptive built the Exaptive platform to make it easier for uh, methodologies and innovations from certain fields to be shared in other fields. And we've developed something we call the Cognitive City platform so that we can actively facilitate that sort of cross-disciplinary communication. Oh, very good, very good. It uh, also would uh, really be very interesting to hear, uh, you know, how the you know where the idea yeah. for this came from, and to hear a little bit of the story of you know how the company came into being. Sure, absolutely. So, um, well, I was always interested in uh, being part of startups, and I always knew that I wanted to start my own company. Um, I did my undergrad degree at MIT. I focused on electrical engineering and computer science, and then. Um, Worked for a number of small startups when I when I got out. Um, actually, and when I was in school, I, I started by working on a very early voiceover telephony idea, which was sort of a precursor to Skype. But this was in 1991, I guess. So it was sort of 56k modems, um, and you know we built something, but it was sort of too early for the market. The sound quality wasn't that good. The VCs didn't want to invest because there was a delay and. Um, and that was probably good because it meant I, I, I finished my degree instead of dropping out, which I would have happily done if we had gotten <laughs> funding. Um, you know, from there, I went on to a company called, called ACX, which was using piezoelectrics to try and improve sports equipment. Um, and then uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the first 10 people in a company called Syncor, which was making these high-efficiency DC-to-DC power supplies. So that's just direct current to direct current. So that takes a very um, high voltage and converts it to a low voltage, but does so in a very efficient way. And, um, and I was there for, for 12 years, and we grew that company to you know, a few hundred people and um, 
uh, quite large revenue numbers. And, um, and in the process of that, I ended up sort of going from being an electrical engineer working on the project itself to working on the software side of things because we had a product that um, was much better than any of the competition out there. And as a result, big companies wanted to buy our power supplies. Uh, big companies like uh, Intel and uh, Lucent and um, you know Hewlett Packard. The problem is those companies like that did not want to do business with a you know ten person startup in Hudson, Massachusetts. And so we were having a hard time assuring those uh, companies that we were going to be able to manufacture these units in a way that was um, traceable enough for them to feel confident that we wouldn't accidentally ship them the wrong, the wrong thing. In, in a complicated manufacturing environment, it's easy to um, have something that looks like it's done but really hasn't had all the right steps. Um, and... And because these big companies had been burned by that in the past by small suppliers, they weren't um, excited to do to do business with us. So I had a background in computer science and, and data. And so I said, well, guys, one of the ways we can try and fix this problem is by just capturing a lot of information about our manufacturing line. And this was this was in 1999. So this was before big data was quite the buzzword it was. And at that time, um, everybody in our manufacturing sector, they, they were tracking things. They were tracking like a, a whole tray of things or a pallet of things. They weren't tracking each individual item. So um, what I suggested is that we track not only each individual item, but each component that went into each item, that basically storage cost had gotten cheap enough that we could track at that level of granularity, and that we could do that all in real time in the factory, and then we could have real-time analytics that would allow us to see um, how our manufacturing process was going, and then we could, you know, provide that to the customers to sort of assure them of the of the quality control. And that ended up really being a differentiator in our market, and we were able to capture a lot of um, business with some of those big clients because we had that level of information technology. So, in the act, so I, I, you know, I was there for twelve years, and and over the years we kept evolving this manufacturing information system. And we had to make sure that we routed things through the factory correctly. And as I worked on that problem, um, it was also around the time that things like um, MapQuest was becoming popular and people were starting to get used to um, having a computer come up with a route for you if you were trying to get from point A to point B. And at some point I realized that the, the act of routing a widget through a factory is really not that different than the act of trying to route, you know, uh, a car uh, through a city. Hmm. Um, and that there were similar trade-offs, which is when you're trying to make something in a factory, there's usually, like, the preferred way of doing it, but that's usually not the only way of doing it. There might be a way that's faster, um, but costs a little bit more. Um, there might be a way that's slower, but um, adds some more tests. And that's sort of like, you know, when you want to get from point A to point B, there might be the, the common route, but then you might want to avoid tolls, you know, so it takes you longer, but it's cheaper. Um, or you might want to stay on the highway or avoid traffic, you know, and then I guess the other thing that happens is just like with traffic, you can have accidents. And in a manufacturing line, that happens too. You end up with a machine breaking or you end up with some other problem. Um, and so I just became really interested in the fact that... Um, you know, there was a revolution happening with GPS and with uh, route finding. 
in this consumer sector. But none of those innovations were sort of easy for me to leverage in the manufacturing environment. And I, I sort of felt like I was recreating aspects of that in manufacturing. Um, and a lot of those things were proprietary technology that I couldn't use. And so it really just got me reflecting. What it got me reflecting on was societal roadblocks to innovation, which is that when you have these silos, you know, you're not encouraging people to collaborate um, because it's not easy to leverage the, these ideas in different domains. And as a result, I think both domains suffer, which is um, if I had been able to more easily use traffic routing algorithms in my application, that would have sort of sped up my time to market. But there were also things that are different about manufacturing um, that, that could have ramifications for improving the way that you do traffic routing. And so I, hmm. I got really obsessed. And this is just one example. There's, there's lots of other examples um, about this. But you were asking about sort of the journey of Exaptive. And this is where it started, which is um, I got really obsessed with this idea of how can we lower the barrier to um, borrowing things from, you know, other disciplines. And, um, and so after Syncor got to a, to a certain size where it no longer felt like a startup company, which is where, you know, that's where my heart is, is, is working for small companies and building small companies, um, I felt like it was, it was time to move on. And um, I had also seen the ways that um, as Syncor had grown, I had really felt like the culture had really, um, it had really gone from sort of an exciting entrepreneurial culture to what really felt like, um, like a toxic culture. And I reflected a lot on, you know, that was sad for me. And I reflected a lot sort of from an organizational psychology perspective on, you know, why this company that I had been um, so proud to help grow, why it sort of had ended up growing into a place that I no longer wanted to stay. And so I was very interested in starting my own company so that I could pursue these two things. I could, I could pursue this idea of facilitating cross-disciplinary innovation, but also I could see about um, building a, a corporate culture that could um, hopefully grow and scale and um, sort of flourish in ways that I felt like um, the previous company had not. Yeah, and I was in kind of taking the larger view. I find that really fascinating mm -hmm. as far as looking at, you know, as you were talking about, you have, you know, one particular business that is, you know, gathering and processing mm -hmm. data, and then you have a completely different organization doing this, you know, for a completely different, mm -hmm. you know, a different mission and a different vision. It sounds like I'm assuming this is, is this something that companies are starting to wake up to the power of being able to not necessarily, is this, I guess, not reinventing the wheel completely? Yeah, yeah I think that... Um I think that as companies are working with data more and more, they are absolutely sort of um, waking up to or putting increased priority on um, improving the ways they can work with that data. One of the things that's been interesting for us as we've grown the company is that we started with a very data-centric focus. That, that was my background, um, you know, as I said, coming out of doing manufacturing tracking systems. And it was the background of some of the early members of my team that had done data science and data visualization. Um, but ultimately, what we were interested in was this cross-disciplinary innovation. And we were just using data as sort of the focal point for that. 
Hmm. What we realized is, as we started selling these data products, is we realized that a number of organizations would talk to us and say, hey, I, I love this idea about trying to cross these organizational boundaries or, or disciplinary silos, um, but we don't wanna, we're not interested in trying to tackle that from a data perspective. We may be interested in trying to tackle that more from sort of a human capital perspective or a publication perspective. So one of the things that became very interesting, and I think this is part of the journey of you know, any, any new venture, is you sort of learn from the marketplace. And one of the things we learned is that um, the, the mission that we were after of facilitated innovation was something that resonated with um, many companies beyond just from a data perspective. So, uh, so one thing we've seen is that large, large companies have you know, thousands of knowledge workers. And, the, and so that knowledge, that could be a scientist in a company. It could be someone working in R&D. It could be an engineer. You know, they have lots of resources that basically their value is sort of tied up in their head. It's what they know. Um, and that those, as the company becomes very big with, you know, thousands of people, you end up with these cases where someone's doing something down the hall that affects somebody on the other end of the hall and they don't even know about it. Hmm. Um, I went to a conference where there was a, a presentation by AbbVie, which is a large pharmaceutical company, and the guy was presenting his work with his um, sort of colleague that had become a partner with us. And after he did the presentation, he said, oh, and it's a funny story because when I started this project, I was doing it alone and I started making some progress. And so then I thought, there's got to be other people that are working on things like this. So he started Googling and he found another person who was working on a really similar thing. And that person, when he Googled, he just had that person's Gmail address. So he sent an email through Gmail. They connected. Oh, my gosh, we're both so interested in the same thing. They had this really good collaboration. Eventually, the guy said, well, where do you work? And, it, and he said, I work at AbbVie. And it turns out that they both worked <laughs> at the same company. They were interested in the same thing. They didn't even know about each other's existence. Wow. They, happened, one, one, they happened to work in different uh, countries. So yeah. that, you know, And so... So one of the things we've found as we've grown the company is that while this started um, very centralized around the idea of uh, facilitating the way data analytics techniques can move, uh, we're starting to get a lot of traction in using our product um, in companies or in academic institutions or in nonprofits or consortia that are um, worried about how they get the most sort of network effects from the unique people that they have amassed in their organization. And if you have data, even better. You know, the nice thing about data is um, it, it, it fuels these sorts of interactions. Um, and so one of the things we've sort of learned to do is to extract data from lots of different sources, um, which might be people's publications, it might be Excel spreadsheets they have, it might be um, internal uh, sort of discussion forums that they use in their company. You know, there's lots of data out there. Um, and really that's become the mission of our company is to use data um, to connect uh, people in ways that will stack the odds in favor of innovation. Yeah, it's very interesting. I almost wonder, is this, I guess, would this be to a certain degree, I guess, organizational behavior as well as human behavior, that as organizations get larger, that this, this is a normal tendency? For to have, you know, where you where you have a lot a lot of times where you have people who are possibly working on the same thing or Absol was there synergy? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, 
we are limited by, by our biology and our neurology in a lot of ways. I mean, the human brain is designed to um, keep in its head, keep in its working memory, um, a finite number of things. And um, so we have a working, we have a sort of short-term working memory that's three to seven. It's part of why um, phone numbers are, are um, or actually I think it's five to nine. So phone numbers started out seven digits without the area code because it was easy for people to, to remember. So we have these sort of, um, we have some just hard-coded mental limitations. And one of them is also in how we make social connections. And I believe the number there is something about a hundred or something like that, that mm. we, we basically um, can keep track of about a hundred people in our extended social circle. And so if you start ending up in, you know, an organization that has a thousand people and it is, you know, of course, some number of those thousand people, it's maybe not so important that you know what they're doing. But if you're, if you're in a company where there's, uh, you know, 300 other scientists that are working on similar areas or 300 other engineers, um, or you're in a large academic institution where there's, you know, a hundred faculty members that all could have some tangential impact on your work. We're just not really designed to keep that social network in our head. Hmm. And so we need to have tools that help us do that. And I think that the unfortunate thing that I've witnessed with the growth of, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all this is that we are use you know we are using technologies now as these sort of mental prosthetics to be able to keep a larger social network in our head but what i think is unfortunate about that is i don't feel like we're using them for really um as great purposes as we could you know we're using them to share pictures and cat videos and basically to you know receive advertising and play games and those are you know there's nothing wrong with those things but um, but that's not going to move society forward. So I think that um, what I'm interested in is, I, I talk about the difference between social networks and cognitive networks. What I'm really interested in is how to take s this social network technology that's been created and apply it to something that's not really about just being social. You know, there's lots oh. of reasons that people want to connect together that isn't just about um, social needs. Um, you know, when people connect together for a support group, you know, that's a totally different reason. When people connect together for work, it's a different reason. So, so what I'm really interested in is what we call cognitive networks, which is how do you connect people together in a way that helps them think uh, more productively, not in a way that just helps them socialize. And I think certain elements are the same. And computer, I think, inter, you know, modern internet technology and computer technology is a linchpin in making this possible. We, we now can have these large uh, networks of people that are all interconnected, that all have good connectivity, that can all communicate each, with each other with fairly low barriers. That's fantastic. Now what we need to do is, is figure out how to make that less about social networks and more about cognitive networks. Oh, and that's, yeah. that's what my company is uh, doing. It really, it, it sounds to me like that, uh, that's that, you know, hearing you talk that, that sounds like that is really the new, the, the new frontier or that's the new, I, this is the, you know, the future. Well, I mean, you know, we feel like it is, I, I think this, you know, this is one of the things I think about entrepreneurship is that, um, you know, well, there's different ways to be entrepreneurs, um, and different types of ventures that a, a person, uh, might start. For me, the things I've always been interested in is trying to figure out, um, you know, 
where where is the arc of technology going and how can that be leveraged in a way that will have some um, you know fundamental societal uh, benefit and I think you know I think what's challenging about that is the sort of conventional wisdom on entrepreneurship is you know to figure out what problem you're trying to solve and you know there's nothing wrong with that and in fact it is it is a sort of necessary perspective if you're if you're not solving a problem for somebody um, you're gonna have a hard time you know having a financially viable business but I think it's not the only way to think about the goal of a venture. In fact, I, I think it is, um, in many ways, an unproductive way to think about some of the big, biggest ventures, which is um, I'm more interested in trying to answer the question, you know, what underutilized resource can technology help us better utilize? And so, you know, those are two sides of the same coin, I think, in a lot of ways. If you look at, um, if you look at companies like Uber, for example, you could say that they're solving a problem. There's a problem that um, people don't like waiting for taxis or they, um, uh, you know, or they're not, off, uh, they're not able to uh, get them the way they want or the taxi drivers are, uh, have been exploited and they'd like to have more freedom in terms of when they work. So you could, you could say those are problems. But I actually think it's more productive to just think of it as underutilized resources. Like the time of a taxi driver has been underutilized. The time of a person can be underutilized. And, you know, the technological innovation of having GPS on our phones now allows us to better utilize that. And Uber is a great example of, you know, better utilizing an underutilized resource. That has to be done carefully. I mean, I, you know, there's all sorts of issues around regulation and policy and all that. But but the point is, you know, Airbnb, uh, you know, this is another sort of um, better utilizing and underutilized resource. And, um, and Wikipedia is a great example of, you know, better utilizing the spare time that lots of smart people have that, <laughs> you know, they can either go home and read a book, play board games, watch TV, or they can, be, they can go home and build like the world's most comprehensive encyclopedia, right? Mm. So, so I think that you know, one of the things I'm really interested in just sort of philosophically when it comes to building business ventures is thinking less in the language of um, solving short-term problems and thinking more from the perspective of um, long-term resource utilization. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in the limit, if you, you know, if the only job of entrepreneurs is to solve problems, then if you imagine, you know, a thousand years from now we're successful then is the world going to have no problems? Like, no, no one believes that, right? Like, no <laughs> one thinks that there's ever an end state in which there's no problems in the world. So, so I think that, you know, just thinking from a problem-solving mentality, it sort of doesn't pass the sniff test for me. Whereas if you think about this idea of underutilized resources, okay, a thousand years from now, might every resource we have be better utilized? Absolutely. I mm. hope so. It, it doesn't mean you stop. You just do it again. You figure out, okay, now what's our least utilize your resource, you know, most underutilized resource and do it again. So, um, you know, don't get me wrong from a pragmatic business perspective, absolutely solving people's problems is the way to get them to write checks. But from the sort of, uh, ethos of starting a venture, I think, um, at least the ones I've been the most interested in are ones that I feel are, are sort of fundamentally changing the way some, some underutilized resource can be consumed. Yeah, and I, and I wonder too: is this really a change in thinking? Is this really a kind of? It sounds like it's a it's a philosoph it's a, a philosophical change, a different way to look at well, to look at business. Yeah, I mean, I um, you know, I don't I don't know about that. I think that 
I mean, it is a different perspective than some of what comes up in um, sort of standard MBA conversation. I The reason I hesitate to say it's different is that I think lots of entrepreneurs think this way. I mean, I think what Elon Musk is doing is, is very similar. Um, Steve Jobs famously said that a computer is a bicycle for the mind. You know, mm. when he when he said that, he wasn't thinking the problem is that minds don't have bicycles. We need to, you know, what, what he was thinking is the, the, the mind is a powerful resource that could be better leveraged if you gave it a tool with a mechanical advantage. That's what the bicycle is. So, so I think that, I, I think that, um, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think actually think this way. I think that there's a challenge that then when we apply hindsight and we try and look back and, um, and distill the, the decisions that were made into um, a very convenient formula for the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, I think we sometimes oversimplify, and it's easy to look back, you know, and say, we solved this problem, we solved that problem, etc. Um, and more what I'm bringing up is not so much a philosophical shift, but I think more just like a nuance that I think is worth paying attention to, you know, um, Many problems that, uh, you know, GPS was invented to uh, help the military, you know, bomb things with accuracy. And now we use GPS for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with that. You can use GPS to see how far you, you go running and you can use GPS to find your way from, from point A to point B. Um, and this, I mean, this goes back to, there's sort of a theme maybe in all, in all the things I'm saying, which is... Um, which is this idea of repurposing and, and reusing things. And um, so that's, you know, I'm sort of interested in ventures, you know, that can help to take that perspective. And my venture itself is a venture in trying to allow more people to do that sort of repurposing and reuse more easily. You know, it's interesting, too, because you see that, you know, for instance, with, you know, older buildings and urban mm -hmm. part, you know, mm -hmm. or in the urban core in a lot of major cities or even medium sized or small cities mm -hmm. that that there seems to be that approach of, you know, trying to repurpose and reuse. And yeah, you know. I mean, cities are fascinating places in general. Um, and, you know, my focus and the focus of my team is on innovation and we want to be able to. Uh, actively play a role in facilitating new idea generation. And so if you're going to try and do that, if you're going to try and tackle that sort of lofty goal, then it helps to try and figure out um, any place where that is being done already. And the places, you know, the we do already have uh, an innovation machine or innovation machines they were not built by software engineers or electrical engineers. They were built by civil engineers. They're cities. Huh. Cities are innovation machines. And um, and they, they have been so for a very long amount of time. Jeffrey West just published, or published a book maybe a few months ago called Scale, which is about the way that cities um, scale in all kinds of unusual ways, with super linear ways, meaning that when a city gets twice as big, certain things... Um, actually get more than twice as big. And um, and there are certain things that have that super linear scaling that are negative, like crime, for example. You know, if you double the size of a city, you get more than twice as much crime, which is bad. But the thing that's good is if you double the size of a city, you actually get more than twice as many patents. 
So you, there are network effects when you put more and more people into closer and closer proximity. Um, there are network effects that actually lead to more innovation. And, you know, the issue is at some point you get diminishing returns. You know, you start, you start putting um, millions and millions and millions of people into cities. You start running into issues of, you know, sanitation and transportation and crime and things like this. And that will eventually... Um, diminish the sort of innovation capacity. So, so what we became interested in, just because you brought up looking at cities and using that as sort of a model for um, reuse and repurposing, I mean, we actually look at cities as a model for innovation uh, interaction as a whole. Hmm. And that's, that's why our, the platform we created is called the Cognitive City Platform. We sort of asked ourselves, what if we could create in a virtual environment um, a virtual city? And then this would be something where we could try and get all the benefits, all the, all the, all the things that make cities lead to innovation. Uh, we could try and keep those and we could try and get rid of all the things uh, that are negative, right? Hmm. So we can tune that environment. Um, in a city, one of the things, one of the, a city is often marked by friction. There's a lot of friction. And we tend to think of friction as a negative term, but um, this was actually pointed out by Jane Jacobs, who wrote a great book um, many years ago called the, the Life and Death of the Great American City, I think is what it's called. And she, she coined this term productive friction. Mm. And she said that part of what a city does is it creates productive friction, which, which might be that, um, you know, you bump into somebody in line and that you, you know, uh, you find out you have a mutual connection or she used the example of walking down the sidewalk and there's, there's sidewalk cafes. And so you end up having a sort of friction there, but a lot of that, a lot of, some of the, those forms of friction are productive. And, and so what I became very interested in is in the software world, it seems like we've used internet and software to try and remove friction from systems without sort of realizing that in the act of doing that, you also diminish those systems innovation capability. And so I think what we need to do is we need to design systems that are much more thoughtful about the friction in the system. And this is our idea of the cognitive city, which is we want to create a virtual environment where we can maximize productive friction and we can minimize negative friction. And, and it's part of why being in Oklahoma City is so exciting for me, because my wife and I moved here four years ago from Boston. And... Um, we moved because she, my wife's an academic and she had a tenure track opportunity at University of Oklahoma, which was fantastic. So great move for her career. I had started my company in Boston. I had an office there and clients there, and I was very nervous about <laughs> what the move would mean for Exaptive. Um, what I didn't expect is when I got here, I re and I saw the sort of, um, renaissance is the term a lot of people use the renaissance that was happening, um, in Oklahoma City, and we rented a small apartment in Midtown, and we just watched Midtown change over the last four years. Wow! Um, and we watched um, the effects of the Maps program, which was the urbanization initiative. So we saw the extent to which um, you know civic leaders were really investing in making some very intentional decisions in their physical city that would lead to new sorts of interactions. We saw the the Brookings Institute come in and help to create the innovation district. And, you know, I said to my wife, wow, you know, 
I've always said that the software we're building at Exaptive is a virtual city. And now, you know, we're here in this place where many people are trying to sort of accomplish some of the same goals we're trying to accomplish in software. And they're trying to accomplish it in brick and mortar in a physical city. Wow. What a great environment, you know, to grow the company. And so we ended up, um, we ended up actually moving the, the home base for the company to Oklahoma City and started hiring exclusively in Oklahoma City and have built up a, a great team here. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been a good fit from that perspective. That's really exciting. In fact, I was going to, if it's okay, I yeah. thought what we might do is take a quick break and then sure. come back and maybe kind of reflect a little bit just yeah. on, on your journey as a Absolutely. whole and, yep. and kind of go from there. Sounds good. Appreciate it.